0: You better be listening to Sleezoids, or I must break you. Now that's when you
1: would hear the voice. The voice. Mm-hmm. Well, we should hear the
0: voice,
1: actually. Let's let's hear it now. This is intriguing.
0: I should say that this. tape is completely undoctored.
1: Mm. There's no edit on it whatsoever. Uh, We should also warn uh, our viewers of a nervous disposition that the things on this tape that they might find a little bit Mm. distressing.
0: We're talking about the Texas Chainsaws that nobody talks about, because that's just what we do here. All right, join us, please. We decide on all the official ratings and rankings for every film that
2: we cover. Patreon subscribers also get an honor shout-out and two bonus episodes every single month, which we have been doing for, uh, we are in our fifth year of bonus yes. episodes, so there's something like 100 plus bonus episodes, so if you haven't made the jump yet, patreon.com slash Podcast. And speaking of which, we did have a few people make the jump this week, so we'll give them their shout-outs here. We had uh, Scott Everett, Yashar GM, uh, Alex Mendez, uh, Alex Miller, Ethan Frank. Patrick Clausen, Bjorn Unar, who signed up at the uh, annual tier, which is something that people can do. I'm sure people know by now, but uh, thanks to Bjorn. Um, We also had Jordan Winnie, who signed up at the $10 uh, a month tier, is going to be joining us for the virtual screenings we do once a month for the $10 patrons. Uh, We're going to try and have fun this month.
0: (laughs) (laughs) We've been going samurai uh, mode.
2: Yeah, we've been watching some kind of crappy ones kind of by accident. We've been doing some crappy slashers. So I think we're going to try and pick something good this week. So thanks to um, Jordan for joining us. Um, we also had John Connell sign up, as well as Joshua McGonagall, Alan Welsh, and last but not least, a good boy. And the picture <laughs> is of a cat. So. That is a good boy right there. Um, <laughs> thanks so much to you folks. Hope you guys are enjoying those bonus episodes. Uh, we appreciate the support. That's the one plug uh, for the week. The other plug, as always, is Apple Podcasts. If you guys are listening on Apple Podcasts, uh, and I, I know that you are, I see the stats, scroll down to the very bottom right now uh, and give us a good old rating and review down there. Helps us climb the ranks at iTunes and find new listeners. And uh, the last plug, Merch. If you like the poster art that local, uh, based out of Toronto, horror artist Trevor Henderson did for the show, you can get that basically put on anything you can think of. A shirt, a hoodie, notebook, pillow, uh, just a straight up poster. We've had people buy, uh, I think someone bought a pen. You know, you know, can. I, I don't even know <laughs> nice. every, all the things that you can buy. If you're interested, that link is in the description as well as at sleezoidspodcast.com. That's the intro. Welcome back to another week. As always, I'm your host, Josh Lewis, and joining me also, as always, is my co-host, Jamie Miller. Welcome back, everybody. Welcome. I think two weeks ago would have been the last time you folks, uh, the main feed listeners, would have heard from us, and we would have had uh, special guest Michael Chow on, uh, who gave us an insane double feature (laughs) of uh, The King of Comedy. Martin Scorsese and Perfect Blue, Satoshi Khan. We talked about the uh, the blurring of fantasy and reality, and uh, media and consumer, and uh, done in fans. two very different eras and two very different styles. And obsessive fans, which once again, um, you know, if anyone out there has cardboard cutouts of Jamie and I and is talking talking to us like that, uh, let us know. You might you might you've earned a prize. You will get yeah, a slot you, on the show.
0: Yeah, I was gonna say, <laughs> come on. <laughs>
2: come join us live the dream um, so that episode uh, was back on the main feed two weeks ago I'm assuming most of you have listened to it but if not what are you doing go check it out and then uh, last week over on the bonus feed over on the patreon uh, we did small time regional crimes gone wrong uh, which as a result we had to talk the, the Cohen brothers so we talked about blood yes. simple their debut film from uh, 1984 I believe And we paired it with a very underseen Canadian gem straight out of Ontario where Jamie and I are from. One of the best, most underrated Canadian crime films made in 1975 even sort of predates a lot of the films that you might compare it to called Sudden... Yuri and it is about a guy who is a shitty real estate agent who basically tries to kill his wife for uh <laughs> by leaving her for dead in a car accident for her money and uh, spends the entire rest of the movie logistically trying to uh get away from that crime and it is not easy to do <laughs> so if you want to talk uh, here's talk about the Coen brothers and the Canadian version of the Coen brothers that existed before they were even filmmakers. Uh, that was on patreoncom slash these always podcast. That was last week's bonus episode. Uh, but moving on to this week, we have a very special returning guest, uh, three time guest actually making, making her third appearance, um, on the pod. And, uh, that guest is a media archivist and a co-host of a podcast that talks about Channel Awesome called Get Cynical, uh, <laughs> Esther Rosenfield. Esther, how are you doing?
1: Good, how are you? Am I the first three-time guest, by the way?
2: Not the first three-time guest, but you wow. join a very exclusive club. Yes. There's, I, think, right? I think there's maybe three or four of you.
1: <laughs> cool. right, I'll take it. I mean, it's been like it's been two years since I was on last. and I know. probably two years before that that I did the first one.
2: I know it's been it's, it's been a little while I, I realized uh, going back and f- trying to remember what exactly the last episode we get to- we did together was that we last recorded at the very first week of the pandemic. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> which was a surreal experience. That podcast gives you the ability to time travel back to how we were <laughs> thinking and feeling back in those moments. Um, so it was definitely wild. Um, but I also think that, you know, Esther's been on, obviously, a couple times, and somehow <laughs> Esther has combined her two fields of expertise and interests <laughs> in, in the world. And I, I wasn't exactly sure what the pairing was when I first looked at it. And then I watched it and I was like, this is the most Esther double feature <laughs> anyone could have possibly come up with. It's unbelievable. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> but Esther, what two films have you brought with you this week and why do they pair together?
1: All right. Uh, the first film is Nobuhiko Obayashi's film, the discarnates also known as summer among the zombies sometimes. But I think the discarnates is a more, su- <laughs> more suitable title for what the movie actually is. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> And the second film is, um, well, I actually don't remember the director off the top of my head, but it is Ghostwatch. uh,
2: Mm -hmm. Leslie Manning, I believe. Leslie
1: Manning's uh, British 90s TV special. Um, And, you know, I think in my previous... Double features. They've been a little more galaxy brained and a little more tenuous in the connections <laughs> between them. Yes, we did. Uh, we
2: did We did. what? A, a racer head in house, and yeah. was was the first time you came on in the first year. And then last time around, that was. Oh, whoa, 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 I was just listening to It was to Prince, this.
1: Of, <laughs> Prince of Darkness and the Blair Witch Project, which Prince I'm. Thank, thank you for letting me get away with that, by the way. Um, no, that was a great episode. No, that th- was fun. <laughs> yeah. Th- this one is much simpler. These are just. Two movies about ghosts. Uh, they're ghost stories. And this being the spookiest time of the year, of course, we had you had to have me on.
2: The right. Uh,
1: early February, as we all know. It's <laughs> that movie, the time that's when the... The, goos, the ghosts and the goblins come out to play.
2: That's right. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, this this was perfect because I was like, the first time Esther came on, she brought on Obayashi. The second time Esther mm-hmm. came on, she brought on found footage, and I was like, "Okay, so here we are. <laughs> here is the 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 intersection of these two interests is in this exact double feature because the the discarnates is a you know seems kind of like an underseen Obayashi, and definitely a very restrained Obayashi for anyone who is maybe only familiar from some of the titles that are more mainstream from him. And uh, Ghost Watch, while not quite I would say necessarily a found footage film, is. Definitely, you know, a film that inspired a lot of filmmakers who would go on to, you know, maybe popularize that that specific genre. And it is incredible piece of, you know, sort of uh, aesthetic imitation. The fact that that basically yeah. operates like a a live TV special, but you are watching a, you know, <laughs> a fictional uh, horror film at the same time.
1: Mm.
2: Very crazy vibes. Um, and it did trick yeah. people, which I can't wait to get into. So. Oh, yes. yeah. That's going to be crazy. The fact the fact that, you know, there were like something like a million call-ins while that was airing on TV because everyone was convinced they were like, like Blair Witch Project, like they were watching it for real. But imagine like 11 million people were watching that live on Halloween night. Like it's insane just to think about. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's awesome. Yeah. But yes, definitely two uh, very different stylistic approaches to ghost stories. And I'm definitely excited to get into these. So let's start off here with the discarnates. All right, we are talking The Discarnates, the 1988 Japanese horror quasi drama film. Uh, directed by one Nobuhiku Obayashi, um, who we've talked about only once previously on this show, uh, which is kind of a travesty, actually, now that I think about it. And the one time it was with Esther who brought on his Mm -hmm. most uh, sort of uh, acclaimed and most popular sort of like film that made it overseas, a film called... House that a lot of our listeners will be familiar with, both because it's relatively popular, but also obviously we've talked about it on the show as well. Um, And I I went back to that episode because I wanted to be like, what were we talking about when we were doing that episode? Because stylistically, it's such a different film. Um, and Obayashi, obviously, very um, uh, well known, and we talked about it on that episode. That he was a, an experimental short film and avant-garde filmmaker, who turned uh, very briefly for budgetary reasons into a very stylish commercial advertisement director, supposedly <laughs> making around three thousand or so in his career, and really developing a very pop visual style of doing that, being able to experiment with the visual trickery of commercials and uh, i think on that episode we even played that Mandom deodorant commercial that he shot with charles bronson
1: yeah (laughs) it's it's so good (laughs)
2: um and yeah a lot of of his counterparts kind of looked down on him for doing commercials but again he was able to get budgets and he was able to practice his visuals uh and you know really make them pop in short you know bursts of of time and house we talked about it when we did that episode um you know was somehow japan's response to jaws um (laughs) (laughs) they 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 were like we wanted a a summary genre hit um and that was what kind of came out of that a movie again with cars filled with bananas and a piano eating girls and you know watermelon turned floating cannibal head all all kinds of dream logic craziness um That, you know, disobeyed a lot of the typical visual rules of coherency in the name of a very kind of um, joyful expression. I remember, Esther, when you were on that, you made a a big point to talk about the, you know, the passion that Obayashi seems to just have for movie making, you know, Mm. that it felt like that, you know, if that was going to be his debut film, he was like, I need every avant-garde technique, every camera trick, every manipulation of the frame that I could possibly fit into it. It's going to be in there. Um yeah. and what's so interesting, sort of moving on, I guess, to the discarnates here, which came out, you know, House was at nineteen seventy seven and obviously, you know, uh very well known for and I think as a result, kind of people Uh, you know mistakenly kind of assume that his entire filmography is going to be wacky that's kind of the thing that Mm. people talk about even though it's not necessarily even if you watch some of his experimental short films that's not exactly the tone Um, so as someone who has watched a lot of obayashi in comparison to jamie and i maybe you can walk us through his obayashi's development and (laughs) shift between 1977 and 1988 to where we got to here with the discarnates
1: Yeah, you know, Obayashi's a guy who, like, has a very sincere love of cinema. Um, And we talked about, you know, years ago when we did that episode, like you say, how that manifests in houses in this sort of rush to uh, excitedly use as many techniques as possible and use the camera in as many different ways as possible. And the way I sort of think of it is, like, once he got that out of his system, uh, he's like, okay, now I'm going to keep making movies, but... I'm going to deploy those ideas in more specific ways. Now that I kind of have a have a sense of what I'm capable of doing and what a camera is capable of doing. Right. Um I can do make any kind of movie I want and he did. He made, you know, he was uh, uh a director of like uh idol movies in that kind of post-house period with just uh you know, actresses and singers and making movies like uh uh, Lonely Heart, and I'm struggling to come up with another name because a lot of those haven't been translated, so I haven't seen right. them. But um, his 80s period is really interesting because he kind of returns to genre fare, but in an often more grounded way. He has films like this, The Discarnates. He has The Girl Who Leapt Through Time. Um, hmm. And then, in some cases, just straightforward dramas like The Deserted City, which is another one of my favorite films of his, which is just, there is no genre elements whatsoever. It is just a drama. Um, it's amazing and heartbreaking. And what's interesting about him, though, is is when you get kind of the discarnates in this 80s period kind of represents like the, uh, the the apex for him of this curve that his career is on, where after he's had this period where he is working a little bit more traditionally, as his career starts to wind down, he starts to get into more of the uh, surreal and kind of gonzo and very extremely extremely stylized stuff to the point of his last films, which are um, *Anagatami* and *Labyrinth of Cinema*, which are obviously they are focused on much more outwardly serious themes. They're both about World War II. Most of his movies are about World War II. Yeah, I was going to say even another. *Even
2: House*. We kind of talked about that. You know, it was you know it was it was a great sort of merging of you know the sort of style of, you know, horror that came from literally his his daughter's sort of like nightmare logic fears, which he, you know, very sort of expressively surreal lies and, and realized surreally, uh, but then also infuse that with, again, his own sort of like post-war anxieties and things like that. So it's, it's very interesting that like, you know, right out the bat, you could see all these things that he was interested in doing, and it sounds like he didn't actually even lose that much interest in doing them. He just found, you know, he was like, I don't need to express them as intensely necessarily, I can do. I can have a little bit more control or patience, you know, rather yeah. than like ninety straight minutes of. <laughs> you know, I'm gonna get all this out. I'm gonna flex. But as then hard he as did. But then he went back to it. And but then as he, went he was, back.
1: as he was dying of cancer, he said, "I'm gonna do three hours straight of of this with Labyrinth of Cinema, and it's Incredible. going to be, you know, that that movie is unbelievable." Um, you <laughs> I mean, should check yeah. that out. Oh my god. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Um, so he, full full circle with this man.
1: He really did. Um, <laughs> but yeah, The Discarnates is really in that middle period of... There are, there are genre elements in this that are not just... It is not like a... Um, <laughs> they sneak up on you. Yeah, no. it's. I mean, it's not like a movie like... I don't know why this is the one that came to mind, but you know The Time Traveler's Wife? <laughs> <laughs>
0: um, I, I yes, I know what you're It is
1: about. not a movie where it's like, all right, we have this, you know... This genre element, which is just sort of like the impetus to tell a more traditional romantic drama, right? It's, it's right, it ex- kind of appears that that's the kind of movie that this is, and then at the end, all of a sudden, it is <laughs> extremely not, and it, uh, it's so good. But we could probably talk about that at the end of this segment.
2: Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, no, I I was quite surprised by this movie because I, you know, again, um, having only seen, been familiar with with his experimental shorts and with House going into this, I, you know, I went in, oh, I'm interested to see what he does with kind of a ghost story. And and this has a lot more of, you know, I mean, House has dreamy qualities, but this has a, again, a more sort of patient kind of romantic quality. Um, Mm -hmm. to it. It's, it's really beautiful. It's really picturesque and it's definitely layering in the fact that you are sort of watching a fantasy drama about a uh, essentially a divorced screenwriter who is reunited uh, as he thinks with the ghosts of his dead parents who have been sort of preserved in this sort of picture, perfect nostalgic memory version of them as sort of younger, but he gets to engage with them as sort of a middle-aged, um, man. And that's kind of like the, the, the very loose premise, um, but i i like all the different sort of stylistic ways that he developed this develops this i mean first of all i really like how first of all by making him a screenwriter how the profession relates to the experience that he's having and you know as a screenwriter he's very accustomed to inventing and sort of imagining conversations uh things that we see him do very early on when he's having like that conversation he has with his co-worker who is coworker co-worker who who works on the like cheap uh it, it looks like they kind of make like 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 soaps almost it's hard to tell he's, yeah the, the opening shot is him watching it on tv and like fast forwarding through parts because he thinks it's kind of
0: lame <laughs> <laughs> yeah um, and then you get a great scene where he's actually interacting with uh some of the actors and actresses and and he it seems like he feels like kind of misunderstood or at least maybe... not respected as much as he should be because well, they, 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 they literally the ask, him to, and, yeah, they
2: ask him to yeah they him to like dumb down the words that he uses so that right. like the, the the pretty actress can say them better they're like you're making it too hard for her right right
0: right <laughs> um, it's very funny it's, too and I like the just how he stylizes that scene where you know she's going through the script and as she's going through um, for every word that she stumbles on somebody else that's far away doing something else turns around and lets her know what the <laughs> word is or whatever just is like a little comedic yeah, at, at at the table read. Yeah, yeah, it's good stuff. I liked it. <laughs>
2: Yeah, but I I, I like that just like right off the bat, it kind of shows you this sort of, you know, a little bit of this sort of mundane reality of living in his condo. You know, he sort of, he feels like a little bit paranoid. He's like peering out the blinds into traffic. He's just sitting alone watching this TV show that, you know, he's made that he's really not all that impressed with. He's even like giving the director notes even after he's watched the tape being like, why are you like fucking up my writing? And then (laughs) the director comes over, has dinner with him and comes over and says, oh yeah, by the way, I can't work with you anymore because you just got a divorce and I'm really into your ex-wife and I'm going <laughs> to pursue her now. Um, Sorry, bro. <laughs> yeah. And like this guy's kind of, I mean, you know, he, he makes it clear he's that he was the one who decided it, to break kind of, up. Yeah. <laughs> it's he's definitely weirded out by it, but he's definitely, yeah. you know, uh,
0: you know, there's, there's still this, understanding uh, and he's trying to still like maintain some type of composure and I guess relationship with the guy.
2: Yeah, he's definitely way. trying to maintain a, profe- a professional relationship. Yeah. Um, yeah. and but it's it's also recognizably a bizarre situation. So watching him <laughs> try to be professional in that situation is very funny. Um right. and I love that after he leaves, he kind of like replays and rehearses Instantly. the conversation that he's just yeah. had. Um, you know, doing the sarees and good lucks that they were just giving to each other about the, you know, assuming this might be the last time they see each other and, you know, uh, because of the
0: the, the more situation that they are in, and, and then starts so channeling
2: that into a screenplay.
0: Yeah, and it, it seems like he does this all of the time, just because he does it so quickly. It's almost like just uh, something that second nature, it, it's an impulse. Yeah, exactly. Um, and although I could see that being, you know, constructive, uh, just the, the 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 quickness that he did it also made me a little concerned that he's not really. Um, he's actually taking these moments in and dealing with them. He's actually just, just living in his kind of like writerly, uh, <laughs> mind. So, yeah. Yeah. Which is definitely an issue he has as the movie. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Eventually you have scenes where he's kind of writing in his head and he's doing it in like the back of a cab while the cab driver's like, what the hell is wrong with this guy? What's going on right now? So. You
1: see, he's very, he's very emotionally closed off in a way that, right. um, Is interesting because, of course, you know, part of the backstory is he is his parents were killed when he was very, very young and he had to kind of raise himself. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think he is sort of because he is so alienated from his own emotions, he's sort of incapable of understanding like the difficulty of his own life in a way that is not like it is only through this kind of reconciliation with with his parents' ghosts and this at the emotional climax of the movie. I don't. I don't know. If, I don't want to skip right to it, but it, like it makes me cry every time. Uh, yeah. Where, <laughs> oh
0: he has yeah. this Conversation
1: no. with his parents over dinner where they talk about, um, you know, because obviously he's an adult and they're appearing as adults and they go to have uh, go to have dinner, and the dad is talking to the waitress about you know his son as though he's not his son, but talking about you know this my friend here lost his parents when he was very young, but he worked so hard and you know and mm-hmm. he really made it, and I'm getting choked mm-hmm. up just talking about it because it's <laughs> so so beautiful. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Yeah, no, I well I, I really like that you know, again, like there's there's this, this aspect in the early sequences of, you know, sort of like this sort of mundane reality of the screenwriter who's kind of, you know, feeling a little down about, you know, both his divorce and his work. And there's also this girl on the third floor who keeps trying to like bother him and flirt with him that for some reason is very upsetting to him. <laughs> um And he there's definitely, you know, the sense of loneliness um, that is uh, expressed visually to the character. And you can tell that he's sort of looking for something else. And this is very um, quickly, you know, he does sort of find a kind of outlet of of what he's what he's hoping for um, by retreating into the past. And there's this great line that they pull from one of his TV shows that they, that the girl keeps saying really stuck with her, which is they say you can't bring the past back, but that's not true. You can, if you want, cause it's your past and it's part of you, you never lost it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that and, is
1: Obayashi's filmography in miniature. Like, uh, there you you know, go. As, his films are very much about, he has three pet themes and one is world war two. And the second one is, uh, memory and nostalgia and the third one is that children shouldn't trust adults. And <laughs> the last two for sure are reflected in this movie. And I, I I'll take a minute to say like the key sort of story. I say the key story, like I'm, I'm speaking, I didn't know the man. I'm speaking in my capacity as a minor expert on his work. Um, <laughs> mm-hmm. but like a key story that he has talked about from his childhood growing up during world war two is that he would, uh, remember when the adults, uh, would tell him and the other children like, "Don't worry, you know, Japan's not going to lose the war. But even if we do get invaded, you know, we'll all kill ourselves, and I'll, I'll, I'll kill all of you. So don't even worry about it." And of course, that didn't happen. So he's talked about how that was the moment when he realized that adults are full of shit, and nationalism is bullshit and stupid. <laughs> and it doesn't make any sense, and yeah. they're all just lying to you. Um, and that's sort of obviously the that you know this is a film very much like a lot of his films about nostalgia, but it's also very much about like the inability to reconnect with childhood as even if it's something you didn't have and that you want very badly.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, and and that's what I really appreciated about this is that like when he does start pursuing this sort of nostalgic fantasy that, that he is partaking in where the, the film kind of walks the line on, you know, uh, you know, are you watching something that's really literally happening or is it some kind of dreamy internal expression or, you know, maybe a combination of both, maybe the latter manifesting into the former. Um, and there, there is this really awesome. And again, you know, very slowly developed stylistic switch that takes place as he you know he's kind of depressed scouting a location i think he's scouting like a train station location there's a great sort of like dollying over yeah. the line back and forth Where he's you know he's kind of like in this shitty train he's like yeah whatever the train station fucking works for the show like just i don't know they <laughs> I, I got i got spooked and scared so and i i was alone so he decided to Go back to his hometown because he saw a sign for it while he was scouting out this location. And as he goes back to his hometown, you know, these feelings of nostalgia for his 12 year old self, who, as he put it, sort of, he, you know, he laughed and cried and, you know, wasn't shut off from his feelings, uh, starts to come back to him. He's visiting the cafes, he's going to the town square, he goes to a vaudeville show, and he meets a guy in the audience who looks and sounds just like his dad straight out of a photo. Um, I love in that sequence, by the way, the synthy like carnival music playing during the show that they're doing. (laughs) It's so good. Um, But the movie in this, uh, it it totally changes even, you know, sort of like the color timing switches. It gets this very sort of like Mm -hmm. orange tinted glow to it. It has this very Mm -hmm. sweet sweet tone and it really feels like this man has just been transpa- transported back to his childhood the way that the the music very uh you know the music swells and the city has this nostalgic glow the camera moves are so smooth and so pretty as he you know goes he joins the man back at his at his house and he finds out that his mom is there as well and he's like he's you know ecstatic about this and he at first he thinks that they're just Strangers that he is maybe projecting onto, and he's not even a hundred percent convinced of it himself. And it, that's the scene in the cab, Jamie, that you you were talking about, right. where he 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 gets really drunk, and he kind of forgets part of the conversation he just had with these people, and then he starts also you know rehearsing and maybe even inventing <laughs> more conversation and things, and it all blends together. It's meant to kind of confuse you a little bit because he's in kind of like a state of
0: of shock and and confusion as well, yeah. um, and even that drunken state. Uh, directly connects to when he uh, runs into the neighbor again and kind of forms that relationship. So it all becomes Mm -hmm. kind of like this blurry Mm -hmm. sequence of scenes when it comes to like him reconnecting with these people from the past.
2: Yeah, And and I I, I loved the cutting... I loved the cutting between him in the back of the cab thinking about the conversations that happened, and then the actual conversations. They were kind of happening like back and forth. I I, I mm-hmm. thought of it mostly because we literally just talked about it two weeks ago on the show, but I was thinking about the scenes when um, <laughs> Robert De Niro was talking to Jerry Lewis in King of Comedy, and there's like parts where you know he's you know he's talking about how <laughs> um, gracious you know uh, he is that Jerry's going to let him be on his show and you know yeah. let him do all of these things, but then it cuts to him in his room having the conversation in his head and the same thing is happening here where he's having the conversation out loud to the cabbie and the cabbie's is like what the? Fuck? <laughs> what's going on <laughs> like and like he's completely lost in this you know uh scene that he has just had it, you know it literally is a scene from a movie that he's just experienced and yeah. he's sort of you know uh yeah. relaying it back to the audience in that way it's really cool
1: it's it's but, it's you know, the way that Obayashi depicts memory as something you can sort of physically step into is something that yes. resonates throughout a lot of his films. The opening of the deserted city is amazing. It's another one of his guy goes back to his hometown movies, kind of. And it's this guy, you know kind of walking the streets of this town where he stayed for a summer as a teenager and sort of flits between color and black and white and it's like he's physically walking through his memories, you know, as he's as he's doing this. And of course, Labyrinth of Cinema is a movie about three kids who are transported into the past, literally, or maybe metaphorically, it's vague by way of watching old war movies. Like it's like the that's like the culmination of this stylistic wow choice he's been making for 40 years
2: yeah no it's, it's really really cool because it it, it it feels exactly like that it feels like a character stepping into you know a, a photographic um, you know sort of nostalgic memory that they have and the the movie frequently again sometimes in a single shot it will actually change its lighting setup depending on how mm-hmm. he feels in that moment like there's one great sequence right. where he returns back to the house visiting the mom and um it looks like what the parents are doing, like when he's not there and she's literally just sitting alone in like this sort of like void almost. And then as soon as, you know, they actually see him and he walks in and he walks up to the house, all of a sudden, like there's an orange sunset, you know, there Mm -hmm. now in the space, like it literally changes what, you know, everything looks like based on, you know, his decision to actually go back into it because there is kind of this push and pull between, you know, this, 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 you know, this memory, this. Uh, relationship that he might be able to have with his parents that he never got to have as a kid. And, you know, he, uh, a lot of this film is just this very, this middle-aged man being treated like a child by two people who are, you know, very clearly yo- like younger than him. <laughs> yeah. Like, I, like I love that, you know, she, he, he's going over and like helping the mom make ice cream. And she's like, ta- he's like, your clothes are going to get all sweaty. And she's like taking them off and like hanging them up for him. And like, you know, treating him, um, like a child is he's playing, uh, a very bright game of catch with his dad <laughs> you know it's it, it's it's very yeah. you know childhood fantasy dreams of things that you would be doing with your parents and it, you know and of course lots of eating they, they always want to uh, yeah. go to restaurants or make dinner but it's really Like again, really beautiful watching him get sort of swept up and the filmmaking gets you really swept up in this, in this fantasy that, that he is having and uh, the way that it's sort of stylized to kind of feel and look like an old photograph. And you know, the, he's seeing the ghosts of his parents in their most beautiful and idealized form. And um, there is however, a kind of switch about uh, 55 minutes in or so. And it was kind of set up earlier in the film. um, But, the around that time, the sort of, uh, you know, some of the really nice sort of longer takes that are happening and some of the, you know, uh, uh, more idyllic images of, you know, sort of him riding around town with his dad or, you know, it, it starts to have these more feverish qualities brought into it. You know, there's like Mm. a bike flying through the air or there's overlaid footage. There's actually a really cool technique I, I hadn't seen before either where it looked like he was blending. He was doing overlaid footage, but with like two different shooting speeds on them. Um, that yeah. that I wasn't sure exactly how he did. Um, but these, and then obviously also the, the color kind of changes sometimes too, where that glow yeah. kind of disappears and it turns into more of like this desaturated kind of gray street, despite the fact that the image is the same. And you're wondering kind of like what's happening here and what's happening is what is literally happening in the style. He is being drained of life somehow. Yeah. We aren't uh, it's not explicitly clear how, but you do assume it is related to this, you know, that by by spending time eating food with his parents all day, he is, you know, receding into a picture and actually, you know, losing track of what's happening to his real body. And he is slowly transforming as he can sort of spot in these very uh, shocking reflective images. He has slowly turned into uh, a literal corpse over the course of the film, uh, which gives the, the fantasy sequence, this tinge of kind of darkness to them that, you know, that these things are draining him of life as he's, you know, but you understand his impulse to want to live in them at the same time. Yeah. So that stuff's all really, um, really well done and lots of, again, lots of really sort of like subtle style cues that, that, that get you into it. And also there is a, uh, I guess important subplot about the girl who lives on the third floor down from him, who he kind of blows off on the first night, but feels bad about doing that on later nights. And as he comes home from his parents and stays in his condo, uh, he starts striking up a relationship, um, with her and kind of relating over their loneliness and maybe past, uh, um, experiences and and tragedies. It's it's uh, Im- implied that she had some sort of accident with a fire and has uh, very much scarred her chest, which I I, I appreciated. Uh, you know, like a, a kind of ugly detail like that in especially when it gets as sexually explicit as this movie does, where she's like literally don't look at the burns while we're having sex. Or it, it's yeah. I, what does she describe it as? It's like it's like it's like a, you ever heard of those myths where like it's forbidden in to look at her like it's like that kind of thing (laughs) right
1: what it it reminds me of and you know it's I think it's the way I would describe the subplot is like he weaves in like a campfire story basically yes um, into this movie and it's what it reminds me of most is the old story about you know the the man who married the girl with the ribbon around her neck oh yeah um and he says, you can never take off, take the out off my neck ever, even after we're married. And of course, uh, well, I won't tell you what happens, but, um, maybe, you know, but that's what, that's what it reminded me of. It's a very sort of, you know, a, 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 a three, a three beat little spooky mm-hmm. tale that is happening kind of parallel and, and thematically parallel to the sort of main thrust of the film.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I I really liked a lot of the the sequences with her because a lot of a lot of her is you know that she's experienced some of the the same sort of alienated feelings that that he is and kind of fo- finding solace uh, by spending time with him and you know obviously it is kind of meant a little bit as like a, you know she's the real girl in the real world and you know by continuing to recede into this fantasy you are you know sacrificing this real thing that you could have and obviously as we get into the kind of finale uh that ends up actually being kind of reversed in a really interesting um way mm-hmm. and that you know the the detrimental effect um might not necessarily have been something to do with um his parents even though it is there sort of emotionally and thematically that you know you you can't just live in a fantasy all the time that's definitely not something the movie is suggesting um yeah. but it wasn't the uh, literal plot cause we will say <laughs> <laughs> right yeah um, but but I just really like the the, the switching between the styles of, of of having you know these overwhelmingly happy sequences that kind of pull him in of playing catch and playing cards and eating dinner these these beautiful sequences with his parents and they you know and then they, As they take on this more melancholy vibe um, with our knowledge of, you know, that living in this picturesque world is is doing real damage to, you know, his his tangible um, sort of existence and watching him even as as a character wrestle with that, where he keeps going back, knowing that it's costing him, you know, uh, his body in a way, but he keeps going back because that's how much he feels for it. That's how much he wishes he could go back to this, this time where he wasn't this kind of jaded adult. Um, Mm -hmm. yeah, you know, even, and and at one point he even like suspects that the food is poisoning him. So he decides not to eat it. Um, (laughs) even, even though he clearly loves it. And as soon as he starts eating a, a bowl of his mom's delicious, creamy ice cream, uh, he starts like
0: crying (laughs) because (laughs) it's it's so good. (laughs) Yeah.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, lots of really great, um, stuff like that, that just really switches between, you know, how kind of, you know, romantic and how melancholy it is. Um, and you know, uh, eventually leading to a really, really dark sort of existential, uh, place where it's revealed that the, uh, woman, who he's been spending all of his time with and actually chose to leave his parents over um, in a really devastating scene that Esther was talking about, like when the last time that he sees his parents, I think that's actually a scene worth going back to once because they they take him to a restaurant knowing it's the last time they're going to see him. And they, they kind of accept they're causing him pain as ghosts and they don't want to do that. Yeah. And that image of those two fading away, literally yeah. right in front of his eyes.
0: Oh yeah, so sad
2: saying how proud they are, even though, you know, he's also trying to explain that, you know, his life isn't as perfect as he said, because again, when he was talking to his parents, he was like, look, I'm, I'm grown up. I'm, I'm so well adjusted. I'm a professional screenwriter. You know, you can watch my work on TV and, you know, you know, that sounds really good, but that's not, how he feels about that thing, that stuff, right? Like he's kind of putting on a happy front for how he feels about his success as a person and watching him break down in that last scene where he's just like, that's, you know, I'm, you know, I, I fucked up my own family and my relationship with my wife and my kid. I'm, you know, not super pleased with all the work that I am doing. I am, I'd be a much better, more successful person if I had like had you, my parents like in my life. Mm -hmm. Um, And watching him break down as they like literally fade away into, you know, sort of like the the sort of sunset light that's like right behind them in the restaurant and revealing him to be just sitting there eating alone as the light kind of disappears as well. Uh, Really, really strong uh, stuff and really just a really great effect. I think it's a, a good example of a kind of effect that we probably saw Obayashi use before, but done with just, you know, a lot more you know, um, pointed control to it a lot more like, here's the exact emotion I want you to get out of these characters fading away into the background of the, uh, of the, the image that I've shot. Um, so yeah, that stuff's really really fantastic, and, and then again eventually- contrast
0: that with the, the horrific ending that he brings to us. Yeah. <laughs> the horrific
2: ending, which is because I, I, which <laughs> totally blew my mind when I watched it because I was kind of I had kind of been lulled into the rhythms of the film by the time that this came, and then I was oh, like, yeah. oh, what the hell, <laughs> <laughs> um, beca- because because it, it literally goes like full exorcist mode (laughs) yeah yeah yeah.
1: this is why i love this movie as a second obayashi if you've seen house first because i get to bring you in with like yeah you know he didn't he made some he didn't just make house like he made some more normal movies too and then you get to the end and you're like you've been you've been uh, tricked into believing i mean it is the case but
2: he 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 wasn't going to get as explosive and crazy as you might expect Um, (laughs) yeah and then, yeah, he absolutely just does. Uh, and even we, we, with the we style, find out. like
0: he starts to incorporate all of the colors that are going on, and the, like the thunder and lightning that's going off uh, yes. in the background yeah. and everything. He just goes super stylized in this, and it's yeah, it's very it's
2: exaggerated. It's it's <laughs> great, yeah. Because his coworker returns to check up on him because this entire time he's been like, yeah, he hasn't really been coming into work. He's just been like sitting in in not his apartment in the apartment on the third floor where he said that he's been seeing a girl, and the doorman goes there hasn't, there's no girl living on the third floor. Did she fucking, yes. she killed herself. She, she yes. gutted herself with a cheese knife <laughs> and, and, and you're like, wait, what? And, and, and my immediate thought was that, oh my God, he's been like imagining this girl as well, which would have been just really <laughs> depressing. Um, and then it turns out that that's not true, that she definitely is there. Um, and God, when that coworker goes up into that room, that incredible zoom on his face on the bed where he just looks like, uh, like, like a zombie essentially years old. Yeah. White hair. <laughs> he's all out of it. Um, and yeah, the, the makeup is great. And He's like leave me alone and and the, the, the there's the, the the storm going the lightning going it's very the foggy there's like wind a, and
0: light everywhere she's got a smile on her face kind of too like a devilish little smirk <laughs> going on <laughs> Yeah and, and,
2: and she in that moment she starts so floating she starts floating and confessing um to killing herself and that by by the action that he committed earlier by turning her away when she was kind of herself at at her her loneliest that she decided to kill herself um that night and it's obviously you know like a really devastating moment where he realizes that he partially contributed to that decision um and after the fact he has fallen in love with her and yeah. he's like screaming and just watching, watching that where, where he, you know, like he is like this zombified man. She is like a floating ghost woman. Who's, um, the, the dress finally reveals the scars because she's not a burn victim. She had stabbed herself many times in the chest and it literally starts spurting blood everywhere, like full, like, uh, uh, Coppola-Dracula operatic craziness <laughs> and as this is happening this extremely ugly image these two characters are being like, I, I, I do love you like it's so... <laughs> Like, like they are having a completely different conversation that is meant to be very romantic and about the feelings that they, you know, the, the solace that they have brought each other away from this loneliness that they feel. Yeah. But, y- you know, not being able to sort of like deny the reality of what happened, which was that she killed herself. Um, and yeah, watching that reality hit him in the face as like a giant bucket of blood <laughs> is uh, pretty amazing. Him pretty amazing it well, and it's huge like they are head to toe covered in blood from it spurting out of her chest as she's floating through the air and yeah just what an image um, to see that accompanied by feelings and thematic feelings that you completely are made to understand which is that these two sort of romantic longing for each other uh, despite the incredibly you know uh, ugly circumstances of of reality and yeah, watching him finally come to terms with the fact that that is just, you know, the the, the world isn't a picture perfect kind of place. But uh, you know, I mean, he's he, he, good, he should
0: he really goes through it at the end, like in the in the last hour or two in his timeline, he's mm-hmm. you know had to say goodbye once again to his parents forever, and then he has to realize that his newfound love is actually a ghost that's been you know, using him to suck the life force of some kind or something like that. <laughs> I, I wasn't entirely certain, but there was still uh, just just the double loss there was was very impactful to me. Yeah. He had a very heartbreaking couple hours there, like everything he thought he was gaining, the very now emotional lost.
2: loss of, least, you know, being able to
0: spend time with his fa- with his parents
2: again. And then the yeah, very uh, physical loss of this woman that he has become romantically involved with uh, covering him in in blood and, <laughs> and, and leaving. <laughs> yeah.
0: And at, and at the very least, though, at le- he does have, you know, the physical loss of these these three people. Um, but at, what I do like in the end is that it still gives him like some catharsis. He he has a reconnection with his son and he seems like he's actually more focused on the work he wants to do and he's doing what he wants to do. Um, and he even, you know, and we can get, get into more detail now that we're there, but even has a moment of uh, at least for him clarity where he thinks it was real, and and even if it wasn't, in a sense, it was just because he experienced those things, and you know th- those oh, were absolutely yeah. Those are going to be memories for him, regardless it was, of if it they was, physically it happened.
2: It was, it was a very cathartic experience that we got to undergo with this character. Yeah, and yeah, p- precisely. Like there, there's a sense of ambiguity that the well, I mean, it's an ambiguity that it feels like the coworker wants to have versus necessarily... Because because he's like, I don't want to believe what I just saw. (laughs) And so we're going to forget about that real quick. Like, Like it definitely...
0: (laughs) That was one of my big questions at the end. I think I think you're completely right because it, it, he he walks in that apartment and he sees all of that. He sees the floating girl. He sees the 150 year old yes. version of his friend. <laughs> he sees the blood splatter and all of that. But at the end, he's just exactly. kind of like, you were just stressed, man. We were all just stressed out and <laughs> that's what we experienced. <laughs> we're uh, just going to go on living, you know? That's- yeah, <laughs> yeah. and I like that he's still able to, to look at, at, at the location and say like, no, r- regardless list of whether it was real or not. Um, it, it was real to me and that's enough. So it's beautiful. Yeah, he, it really he, he, he really is, got, he really got to
2: spend, spend the summer with his dead parents and a girl who killed herself and together they all had a great summer together.
0: Yeah. Um, like two different, two versions of a, a second chance kind of thing. Cause you know, mm-hmm. he had that moment with, um, with, with the woman where I guess he could have been a little bit more kind and <laughs> inviting, um, and I guess with his parents, so they were just ripped away. But that's more of just a, a second chance at having a, having a real childhood, um, which is also mm-hmm. beautiful. So, yeah, it's really good stuff. And the, the, just the, the genre uh, switching um, and, the, and, and the quickness of it is, I, I thought, very jarring at first. But um, I, I actually watched this twice. And once I had the entire context of everything and I was looking at it, uh, knowing where it led... Um, it felt a little mm-hmm. more clear to me uh, just, just because some of these, the contrasts are quite uh, large and, um, and I, I found, you know, going from the, 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 the yellow tinge sequences with
2: the parents to like going back like, to his condo and stuff where he's yeah. like, where she's like, look in the mirror and he's looking in the mirror and he's, you know, Old uh, and
0: yeah, it felt, it he's felt this very sharp, but, um, but it really does come together by the end, I think in a, in a really cool way. So yeah, yeah, this is great. Yeah, I think,
2: I think it's very, you know, um, I, I think it's stylistically blended um, very well and definitely yeah. very thematically sound. Once you get to the end, you, you know, and all the mysteries have kind of been resolved and you get to think about it in retrospect and all of that stuff is um, definitely really strong.
1: Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but uh, yeah, maybe pivoting to a uh, reductive rating round on the discarnates. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, this is going to get a really solid four for me. Maybe even uh, I would have to watch it again, but maybe even a high four because I I think that this was I only got to watch it the one time. And I, I do kind of want to check it out a second time because I <laughs> I was definitely shocked uh, by the <laughs> <Yeah>. last uh <laughs> I, about 10 and 15 minutes or so because i i i, I kind of grooved with the um elements that i think jamie was finding a little bit more jarring on on the first watch because i i just thought the the style was so controlled um
0: yeah, and i thought that it, it, it had this
2: really effective confident sort of build-up to it and it, it definitely was moving at a, a slower pace than i've come to expect of obayashi and you know it, it leaves a lot of room for you to sit in the feelings of the characters and kind of absorb some of the the details that we are you know sort of learning through the conversations that he's having with his parents and some of the um, details about you know um, both what happened to them and maybe how he had to take care of himself and maybe how that had an effect on sort of the you know his emotionally shut off state that he's currently in and Um, that time really helps with the ending really Exactly. Well, cause I think that that really emotionally accentuates the genre thrills when they actually do arrive. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, and then when he lets loose, you know, those elements are crazy. Um, definitely <laughs> has the most rotting flesh and floating women and blood spurting that you will see. in what is otherwise like a, a, a fairly romantic drama, uh, very yeah. picturesque. Um, and yeah. And, and I, I did really like you know, uh, Esther kind of um, the fact that this has become sort of a trait of Obayashi and that a lot of the things that he's been interested in doing have been kind of like these physical manifestations of these memories and maybe being things that you could walk into, but also being something that as a filmmaker, you have to kind of construct and invent and imagine. I liked how those two things blend together um with this character watching him rehearse conversations and then have them actually for real and also as a you know uh, i like how it relates to him like watching his own images on the tv you know like we watch him see the things that get broadcast into the world all of these scenes of him you know people not just watching tv but sometimes also citing his lines of dialogue back to him is really cool um, it, it contributes, I think, to these artistic anxieties, um, you know, about an individual's relationship to the thing that they create and kind of send out into the world. And it, it layers a little bit more am- ambiguity into uh, the fantasy sequences with his parents, because you you do spend a lot of the movie wondering, is he imagining this? Is this like a movie that's happening in his head? Yeah. It's just so dreamy um, and so romantic. But and as it develops the sort of eerier qualities It is just a really solid horror movie about memory and nostalgia and wishing to recede into it, despite the fact that it might literally be draining your life or you, you you know, you might be choosing not to live a life that you could be having, Um, which is why it's I find it so painful when you get to those shocking genre (laughs) moments at the end where he fits in the ghost story elements because he ultimately does choose. He does go you know, this fantasy version of my parents isn't worth sacrificing a real romance I could have with a real woman. And then that woman, uh, is a ghost as well. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, yeah, the, the the fact that, you know, it pulls that twist and somehow at the end, you know, it, it goes to those really dark places, um, and still ends in a place that I find very sweet and kind of life affirming in a way. I, I, I think it's very moving. Um, and I think that, the, the the style is very subjective and atmospheric and i think it all really works so yeah uh solid four for me
0: yeah uh me too uh the first time it was like a, a strong three but i i felt like having the context um it's almost like you know you you don't really know you're watching a horror movie until the last half hour or so and and then having that knowledge and then coming going back to those scenes in the first hour i think just really helps with uh clarifying the connections between his relationship with the girl and the relationship with his um, parents and how he's kind of trying to find catharsis mm-hmm. between the two. Uh, it, it just helped a lot to clarify a few things because, you know, his, the way that he stylizes things um, can be, very jarring. And, and I mean that in a very good way. Um, mm-hmm. So I also I, I love the contrast in the look just between like the modern time. A lot of the time when he's in his apartment, it's it's usually like dark. Sometimes it's raining. And then when he visits his family um, or his parents, it's it's got this, you know, yellow or orange tinge to it. It just feels like this bright and sunny summer day. Just everything's perfect. And, and I, I loved those scenes constantly going back and forth. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, and yeah, and I, I just, I, I, really liked, uh, that the character, although goes through some really horrific things at the end does get some type of, uh, redemption <laughs> and, um, it, you know, he, he learns to, uh, have a relationship with his son and learns to, to move forward instead of just constantly looking back. So I, I do think that it was a well-deserved ending for the character. <laughs> I'm glad it didn't end in entirely in heartbreak. So yeah, yeah, this was really good. I got to I got to tackle more, uh, of this director. Cause I, I, I feel like, um, I, I, really latch on to his kind of dreamscape, the the way that he makes, um, his, his films very just dreamlike. I, I love it. So I'm going to, I'm definitely going to tackle some more. Um, Esther, Hell yeah, there, there Esther. Was...
2: Yeah, I was gonna. Say, I was gonna say, what's the what's the third one? You said this is the second one you like to show people. What's the third one?
0: Um,
1: my favorite film of all time is *His Motorbike Her Island*. Um, it's I can't. Maybe we'll have have me on in two more years, and maybe I can talk about that one. But okay. you should watch it sooner what? than that because it's amazing.
0: When um when you say that he th- there's that one movie you were mentioning where where he dives into his his past going through like the city that he grew up in and obviously this would be different but is it similar to how have you seen um Siberia uh, I have
1: not no
0: okay okay but Josh do you know what I'm saying where it's kind of like him revisiting some of his is his youth and past kind of going through his yeah, memories, but in this very for, dark for, and dreamlike way. I guess it wouldn't be as dark probably with him, but yeah. Yeah. Um, Ferreira
2: does it in kind of like this, uh, subjective psychological kind of like uh, funhouse kind of quality where he's right. kind of like walking in on scenes from previous times and things like that. Um, I guess Jamie is asking if, if Obayashi has ever done anything like that or if he has like sort of a different way of approaching Um, going back through your memories, kind of like a photo album.
1: (laughs) Gosh, not in the the deserted city. That is definitely much, that is a more traditionally structured film um, Mm. in general. But I'm trying to think, because I think he has done something like that, where it's sort of a, a figure in the future having that kind of, physical presence in their own memories. I, I don't remember. Yeah, a, oh, okay. Head, but I'm pretty That's sure cool. he has definitely in his later stuff. He gets a lot more playful, um, with, uh, setting and with where people are in, in a scene, um, mm-hmm. and when people are in a scene, um, his film casting blossoms to the sky, which is one of his war trilogy films, which is sort of like, I like to say it's his take on an essay film, but it's much, <laughs> much stranger. Um, then, and what you probably think of when you hear that um, d- does a lot of that in terms of kind of mixing and matching and having people sort of take almost like a walking tour of of a scene in the past. Okay, It's really, really cool.
2: Cool. Um, but the uh, discarnates for you, Esther, is this the five?
1: This is the five. I, I You know, I, I only guess. bring bangers on here, you know. That's I, true. I, <laughs> that's true. I, I, yeah, this is one of my favorite Obayashis. Not my number one, but it is... Top three. I think it's phenomenal.
0: Awesome. Yeah, it's a beautiful film. Yeah, I'm really glad that you bought it. I,
2: uh, cause I, I just, I, I've been thinking about it since I watched it two days ago. So I've been, I've been sitting, it's been, it's been in my mind. All those idyllic surfaces have just been sitting in there. And then also the insanely creepy and explosive finale and how those two <laughs> relate, those two things relate to each other. They've, uh, I, I think anyone watching it for the first time, you might get your wires crossed a little bit, but yeah. I think it's, I think it is really, really well developed and, and like thought through. It's very considered, it I think. Yeah. I um, felt
0: like the first time I watched it, it was, my fault. That's why I watched it a second time. Actually, I, I I finished it and I went no, I didn't. I didn't grasp that correctly. I'm I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna revisit this one. So yeah, it's it's really really
2: really solid. Awesome. So so if you can find this one, uh, highly recommend checking out uh, the Discarnates uh, from 1988. But I think that that's gonna wrap it up for that. And we are gonna be right back. And we are gonna be talking about a ghost film from just uh, four years later called a ghost watch on saturday night we'll be visiting the most
0: haunted house in britain but will the ghosts be there can you take it
2: ghost watch a screen one special for halloween saturday at 9 25 on one all right we are back and we are talking ghost watch the Uh, 1992 British, uh, as described here, reality horror pseudo-documentary television film (laughs) first broadcast on BBC One on Halloween night, 1992. It is written by a man named Stephen Folk uh, and directed by Leslie Manning. This was a sort of television special that was produced um, by the BBC starring a lot of uh, BBC anchors and reporters. Uh, and it is, uh, for anyone who hasn't seen it, it is a sort of uh, fictionalized um, show where these reporters investigate, you know, uh, the sort of paranormal goings-on of a small British community and a family who lives in a, in a, in a flat where they are having strange things, objects flying, girls being attacked, all kinds of various things that are happening that feel supernatural and paranormal. And so this team of broadcasters, very dry British broadcasters, are uh, going (laughs) in to investigate (laughs) and they are televising it. Uh, Supposedly they are televising it live. That is the way that it is sort of... um, made to look, but it was actually shot obviously in advance and is definitely more of sort of a reality TV sort of mockumentary, I guess, kind of style, but without sacrificing once again, exactly like the Obayashi film, the fact that it is uh, a real deal horror film um, at the same time. And very, very famously, as we alluded to in the intro, this movie um, or TV special Created a huge controversy in the UK about the ethics of live TV and broadcasting uh, things that you know might be fictionalized. Yeah, um, it was very
0: similar to like uh, War of the Worlds when that caused a ruckus back on the yes the radio stations.
2: <laughs> yes Orson Welles War of the Worlds uh, definitely one of the great pieces of accidental prank art (laughs) Um, and you can add Ghostwatch uh, to the list of uh, prank art that is also just incredibly well done and really convincingly done which is why it had the uproar that it did because they just aired it randomly 9pm Halloween night they apparently the BBC did require them uh, because, the, because they actually were concerned and they nearly pull, pulled the show at one point, they said they insisted they had to add opening credits to include yeah. the, the writer's name and the title I of could, the thing uh... and the people who are in it. But the, the they did it in the most hilarious way possible where it was like five seconds of opening <laughs> credits.
0: Yeah, <laughs> that's the thing. I so so imagine. so
2: everybody tuned in late. Everyone tuned in at like 9.01 right. and missed that and thought they were just watching a live um Broadcast.
0: Yeah, like imagine hey. you're you're you've missed even an hour of it, right? And you're in the last half hour where where the girl is just speaking like the devil and d- doing nursery <laughs> rhymes and shit, and you're just like, "This is uh, live on BBC right now. What's going on?" <laughs> like, I can't yeah,
1: imagine. Yeah, it's great. If you didn't see the first thirty seconds of this, because again, the most important thing about this is that it's real BBC anchors who are like very right. very well known. It would be like if Brian Williams and Lester Holt. We're doing a special <laughs> live broadcast about a haunted house, <laughs> and, and all of this happened. If you tuned in at that point, you would have no reason not to believe it was real. And they were right. doing other things, you know. They're, they were doing fake call-ins, like they had a call-in number. Um, yeah, but of course, all the call-ins are scripted. But you don't yeah. know that. You're, there were people calling in, being like, "I think I saw some," you know, and, and <laughs> you had no way of knowing that it wasn't real. It's, it's, you know, you, like you kind of talked about Josh. It's not really a footage movie per se, because it's not, you know, the footage, the backstory is not that the footage was found, um, <laughs> but it, it, it is definitely shares something in common with sort of, you know, obviously it is a, a supposed documentation of real events. Um, yes. but also it kind of has that, you know, like, like the Blair Witch Project it has that kind of prank sensibility of like, you know, part of the experience of this movie is that you are being tricked into thinking that it is real. And in the Blair Witch's case, it was something that happened. And in this case, it's something that is happening right now. And that in fact can like, could be happening to you in your house.
2: Yeah. Yeah. The the, the movies just have two very different ideas on how to make, how to blend that reality, how to imitate that sort of aesthetically. Because I, I think we talked about when we talked about Blair Witch with you, the thing that's kind of cool about found footage in general is that it changes the way that you're watching something, you know, mm. like, like it, 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 yeah. it sort of leaves you unprepared for the eventual genre shocks that it's going to turn because of the sort of like inherent, uh, kind of distance you have from some of the things that you're watching. And now in Blair Witch Project, there's more of kind of like this sort of, um, Blurrier, kind of more abstracted quality to that film. I, I think you talked about the forbidden sort of VHS quality to it. Whereas mm, this yeah. creates that distance through a deliberate TV flatness. You know, yeah. it has this sort of yeah. construct controlled constructed set and TV personalities that you perhaps even have a relationship with because you watch them on the nightly news every night. Um, and, and watching that form of, you know hysteria and breakdown take place in that setting i think makes it more shocking when it eventually does happen because you're watching a literal set be destroyed you're watching these people who have these you know performances that they put on for the broadcast be shattered by
0: you know the actual events that are that are taking place in the film because the camera is physically there like that that's something that that comes into play a lot especially when they have the uh um, the the live network that's viewing them outside in the van and so they can kind of start doing tricks like what we saw with Scream for instance where they kind of have either not necessarily a delay what they use in this movie it's more like uh, it sets up a false uh, present that that's happening like they're all at the table just playing yes. a video we're like, just playing a game and in reality the house is completely just a mess and things are going crazy and people are screaming and and all of that. So I like that they get to play with that kind of format throughout as well. And I and I love that the hosts um, and for a while, too, aren't like, you know, they're, they're taking it as seriously as they can, but they're not taking it probably as seriously as they should, especially given that the performances from the, the family are just giving off this, like this dread and exhaustion. And like, we've been through the ringer with this thing. And yet you have these hosts that, you know, like Sarah, Oh yeah. They are absolutely skeptics. And some of
2: them are treating it like a joke, right?
0: Right. Exactly. (laughs) Like they're coming, especially the, the one, uh, uh, bald guy. He's, he's kind of like every single thing he does is a joke where even when he's interviewing people about like a, a child being stabbed in the playground and stuff, he's still adding like that kind of TV host humor or whatever. Like, Um,
2: isn't this? A, yeah, we're like we're in uh, England's Amityville.
0: Isn't that crazy? <laughs> yeah, this, this woman was telling me about how a five-year-old got stabbed. Tell me a little more, like that kind of thing. Yeah. You know, it's just, it's just. Uh, I, I like that, and, and slowly the distance just kind of like it. Uh, it shrinks because they're they're kind of just forced to reckon with the the supernatural forces at hand. So it's it's. I love that 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 aspect of it. Yeah, that's great, and I especially
2: love the dry British cadence of the broadcasters and the whole Everyone, thing. Like, like, yeah. like, because like the, this form of news, I don't know, uh, sort of. I guess I think I think American news is kind of maybe a bit different, but like this kind of news is exactly what Canadian news is like as well. And <laughs> and so I was sitting, so I was sitting there going like, yeah, it's, it's just some old guy just talking in a really kind of like uh, like he has a little bit of that radio personality charisma, yeah, but like pleasant- not. Voice. Not the most amount, really. Like most of the he, he basically he makes a at a career out of just like describing the mundane things around him, right? Um, and, <laughs> and a calm, and collected I, voice, yeah. Exactly. And and being kind of like, you know, in, in, you know, in order to not be biased, you know, we're going to invite, you know, this, this skeptic on to kind of talk about it. And, you know, it's, it's just it, very yeah. clearly they intended this to be a very boring news broadcast. And the movie is so good at aesthetically replicating that yes. and having the performances yeah. replicate that while slowly cranking the scares and making hmm. the scenarios just a little bit scarier and scarier as the movie goes on a little bit of detail here, a little bit of, you know, a, a ghost in a video footage that they kind of see, they go, Oh, that's, you know, that's weird. Right. You know, I don't, I don't really see anything, you know, <laughs> I like, <that> it's <laughs> you know, a caller
0: that sets that off too. Like yes. it was someone watching yeah. the live broadcast and they're like, Oh, I saw something I can give information to help these, their investigation. Um, yes. and it's
1: teaching you how to watch the movie too because yes, exactly. if you have if you haven't already, go to YouTube and look up Ghost Watch All Pipe Sightings because uh, there yes. are so many that the first time I watched this movie, I couldn't believe how many like, how much the ghost is in this movie, and you, it just flies right by you. Yeah. They're yeah, so yeah, good the, at hiding him.
2: I only caught I only caught the one where there's the one where it sort of pans across the bedroom after the face scratching scene. I caught him there. Obviously the really big one where he's behind the cellar door as they close it, but they don't see him. (laughs) Um, the, the the standing behind the doctor while they're listening to the tape uh, in the studio was one of the really creepy mm-hmm. ones. Yes. And then uh, the only other one I caught was uh, walking around in the background in the park while he's interviewing the various neighbors. But I think I only caught like four and apparently there's like 15 or something or <laughs> some, somewhere around <laughs> That's there. That's crazy. There's wow. a, there's an incredible amount.
1: Yeah. It's so cool. And it reminds me if you've seen the movie Lake Mungo, Um, another one of my favorite movies. It's it's entirely premised on this idea of like, we just showed you something, but now look at it again. And there was something scary there, the whole, which is, it just hits every time. And Ghostwatch is like, you know, uh, the foundation of that, I think like, and that's this idea that, yeah.
0: I think that's the thing about like ghost stories that, that are so scary or just the, just the general thought that something was there, but you didn't know it was like, I always Mm -hmm. think back to an old, like it's like the old, Uh, babysitting horror stories where it's like, uh, I felt the dog licking my hand and then I found out they didn't have a dog, that kind of thing. Um, (laughs) It's just, it's, it's that, that thought that you thought something was happening and it was normal and comfortable, but later on you get the information that you were in a very, very either dangerous or just uncomfortable space and you had no idea. And that, that almost just adds to the discomfort. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, so that, that, so much of
1: it is what when it's it's really playing with like, it's almost a participatory film in that way. It's like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and yep. you know, as obviously when you get to the climax and it gets it, it's in that almost like that fifties way of like, and it's happening to you right now and it's in the <laughs> theater. Yeah. Um, a great story that I, I love from the making of this movie is that one thing that they wanted to do but couldn't is that they wanted to include in the broadcast a high pitched tone that only pets would be able to hear. So as the film is going on, your pets in your house start freaking out because they're hearing this noise. <laughs> <That'd be laughs> it's, awesome. like, it's, it's so fucking cool. It's I, like I wish they'd been able to do it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh man, that's wild.
2: Yeah. Or, um, the, the
0: Tingler, who's the Tingler guy? Oh, remember right. that, that was the, that was and one that we, it, like we, going we... across the screen and stuff as if it's taking over yeah. Your television.
1: Yeah.
2: It, <laughs> exactly um knowing that it's so cool that this is honestly just one of the most like confidently crafted out of nowhere gimmick movies that i've ever seen yeah. um and and well before its time because obviously it predates you know blair witch w- which we already talked about um with esther and,
0: and and how much we we liked it and it predates the um, uh, the conjuring too because it's uh, the same um uh, obviously, it's a different format or uh, the way they're using the genre, but it's the same uh, story about the, uh, the the two daughters that thought that they were possessed. And uh, I think oh, it was yeah, like the, the Einfeld uh, haunting or something like the that. The Einfeld
2: poltergeist. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, so which I was like that was it, cool. the, 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 the little girls with the uh, disembodied voices and thrown toys and right. children levitating. Definitely a, a kind of fear that was bubbling in, in the seventies. And, and that um, story
1: also, of course became the basis of the film, the conjuring Two many years later. Um, right. Yes. <laughs>
2: yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, it, it just, it, it blows My mind, like, imagine watching this live on TV when it it would have been spectacular. Like, 11 million people watched this and were genuinely you know like apparently they did they did get a lot of calls that people were just really enjoying the program i don't know yeah. how true that is but um because the movie did earn the uh the the honor of being known as the first tv program cited in the british medical journal for having caused post-traumatic <laughs> stress disorder in children
0: Damn. there That's was something like
2: there w- there was two confirmed cases and there was like five or six others that they they sort of hinted at but didn't necessarily get actually um, blamed for and they also think- uh, there's also a suicide that they try to um, attach to the film as well because they say oh, that right. the 18 the year old boy who watched the film the the parents described him as sort of like like hypnotized by what he had seen <laughs> and not he didn't believe his reality anymore or something like that um, and and so like as a result, Crazy. this was like there was outrage over the B- BBC playing this and it never aired. The, like, The BBC basically said they would never air it again. Um, and the only other place it did get aired eventually was in Canada. <laughs> 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 but it was like many, many years later and people had heard of it by then. So
0: and the thing is, like um, the, the way that they 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 really milk it, like the, the horror, it It, it does. Uh, go mm-hmm. on for quite a bit where it's mostly just like stories from locals and uh, you know stories from people that are calling in and, and you know the, the doctor giving kind of her analysis on things um, and it's only in the last like 20 minutes when you start to really rev up the, the, the ghostly encounters so I could imagine if you know you're a kid sitting there You could think maybe your your child next to you could could watch this and it would be completely fine. You know, they're just talking about the ghost. It's a little scary here and there. It's Halloween night, whatever. Yeah, it's Halloween night. This is
2: what the news does on Halloween. They do a a (laughs) Halloween themed uh, little expose. That's all it is. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And then it just turns into this crazy demonic thing where all of Britain is possessed by uh, this character that I forget the name of now. But um yeah, it's it's crazy how long they they milk it before they really start to explode all the horror stuff in a good. Yeah, way honestly,
2: it, honestly, it, it takes like an hour before this would probably right. be just indistinguishable from watching like a real
0: like a ghost the, the real thing, thing
2: where it's like literally just them like interviewing locals and the way that they move between the studio where it's like, there's the anchor and then there's the doctor who is someone who believes the family and is there kind of like presenting their case to the audience and showing all of the evidence. Like there's even moments where they're walking through the studio and they're like, here's the the various evidence from around the house, like the drawings that the little girls made of the creepy figure. And like, you know, yeah. <laughs> so and the like the actress
0: there's... that plays Dr. Lynn is really convincing. I really liked her performance. She's just a, uh... She's just very uh, like relaxed and uh, composed with her yeah. performance, and I and I like um, I like for instance, I liked her thought on when she's going up against the skeptic, um, and she says something like, "These supernatural things can't be replicated in a lab. It's it's kind of like inspiration or um, something along those natures. Like you can't really." you can't uh measure yeah, or, or
2: or or falling in love like it's, it's right. yeah it's it's it's, it's not pro- scientifically and, provable but like you know something is happening there's a you know there's yeah. some sort of something manifesting here
0: and it's a little like poetic these people are traumatized
2: by, this mother yeah. and her two daughters
0: <laughs> but i think it's a good perspective to have especially when you have the flip that they kind of do where you know it shows that the daughter was banging on the pipes to kind of fake them out and make them think that the ghost was happening when it wasn't. Um, Mm -hmm. It just kind of uh, creates this perspective that it it still could be happening. It's not something that is going to be um, as easy to prove as something that would just happen over and over again, like a scientific experiment. So I just, yeah, I I liked her character in general.
2: Yeah, no, I I think, I think the stroke of genius really is, you know, making, all of these people like the actual British broadcasters and stuff do. Cause I think she's one of the few only actual actresses along with like the family. Right. But like yeah. the, the, the phone in yeah. presenter, the interviewer, the reporter, and uh, the sort of head anchor, Michael Parkinson, they are all the real broadcasters interacting with this fictional story and lending it that sort of credence and watching them be like, tonight we are going to find irrefutable irrefutable proof that ghosts do exist and they're kind of like hamming it up a little bit in the program and everything too and like playing pranks on each other and like kind of giggling that they're like you know we're we're a little paranormal research team and like even the montage of them like loading up the equipment into the car and like getting the lights ready to go and 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 yeah. That stuff's all really great.
0: There are moments, too, where Dr. Lin is beside the main host and he kind of does these, like, little jabs at, like, you know, are we going to really find a ghost or whatever? And you can see (laughs) on her face that she's actually like pissed off like she's the only one in the scene that's not laughing or or making any jokes because you know she's Mm -hmm. been we find out eventually that she's been with this family for you know however many weeks and has has actually seen these things happen so she takes them just as seriously as the family does but everyone surrounding her uh is essentially just laughing at her and mocking her
2: yeah and i i like that they get into the the sort of like in the peripheral detail, they'll get into like the pain of that. Like I, I Mm -hmm. really liked the fact that, you know, the family kind of lays out the history on the broadcast to, you know, like, yeah, we went to a social worker and they said that we should just see a psychiatrist. And then we talked to, you know, when that didn't work, we talked to the media and they just started sort of sensationalizing it and trying to make us all just look like a bunch of morons. Um, and which is exactly what like this crew. (laughs) Yeah. Like it's (laughs) exactly what the BBC is trying to do
0: yeah the one uh I think her name's Sarah, um the blonde host she i I, yeah. I think does try her best to kind of balance the two things where she knows that she's a host and needs to probably keep people calm at home, but at the same time, she is also the most sympathetic and empathetic towards the family like she's all she's always the one trying to help the the little girls if they're getting scared or sh- or really talking to the mother as a human being rather than the other hosts, I think, yeah. Yeah.
2: No, I I, I think that this is like, like in in terms of its style, I think I was what I ended up being most impressed by because the the handheld camera work with like the boom and the crew and everything in it is constantly, you know, obviously giving it a little bit of authenticity. But then they also in the way that they've set it up, they've given themselves a bunch of options in the editing room as well. Right. Like there's all these amazing wide angle lens sort of like overhead setups around the house that they frequently cut back to and really, um, sort of uh shocking moments and the way that they kind of like bring the the studio lights to the house and the kind of calculated imperfections of the sound and and the image as they you know are replicating this very live spontaneous sort of situation where they're they're constantly i i like that you know this is a very overtly constructed film but there are moments where the characters have to be like well while we're waiting for more calls, why don't we go see what so-and-so is up to? And like the guy is like not ready to cut to him. And he's like, oh <laughs> shit, like I, oh. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah,
0: yeah, they, they really lean into the the kind of live aspect, which is, which is a good thing. And once again, another really fun way of kind of uh, tricking the audience too. Yeah, I mean
2: I mean like despite doing that, like this is very a very clearly it's very considered in its blocking and in its movement. Oh, yeah. And there's great long tracking shots that are kind of get lost in the chaos with the characters sometimes, and there's these edits that sometimes try to pull us out from that chaos and have us just be kind of creepy observers sometimes. Yeah. That, that that really works. Um and, and like the you know, the previous one we were talking about the discarnates, it's really good at slowly developing um, detail and and twisting tension out of these characters, and as Esther pointed out, like really teaching you how to engage with the film as you, mm-hmm. you know, uh, you know, you. There are times where you get lulled into being, you know, taking it as seriously as some of these reporters are, and then a small detail will crop up and you'll be like, that's fucking weird. Please look into that. What are you guys doing? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there, there are, there are moments of frustration I think built into the film um, really well. Um, another, and it's, just, it's really clever and creepy.
0: Yeah. Another good aspect of the live thing is where the main host in the studio, um, he, he's even having moments where he, he's starting to doubt this the story. Um, I think it's the moment, like I mentioned, where the little girl was hitting the pipes or whatever, um, and you mm-hmm. can see him kind of in this this panicked mode where he's still trying to keep the special going, but he knows that he has his you know higher ups that are going to get insanely pissed off at him if he starts to still kind of indulge in the the ghostly aspects of this because you know mm-hmm. th- they find it irresponsible or whatever. Um, and so that was just another interesting aspect I liked about the, the relation between like the studio he works for him as a host that's trying to engage with this ghost story, uh, him engaging with human beings that are trying to tell them that this is real and happening. Uh, but he, mm-hmm. even if he wanted and there to, they're being like, what really... a,
2: a guy named pipes, come yeah, on. <laughs> yeah.
0: And, and really, even if he wanted to, I think that there's that pressure being working for you know the bbc some giant studio that you can't Mm. really dig in any deeper at a certain point just because he himself might get fired or whatever else you know so i I like that too i thought that was clever i
2: definitely like that parkinson is there to try to just maintain a level of control
0: (laughs) yeah Um, yeah
2: especially because because as the film gets slowly more you know uh chaotic and kind of hysterical especially especially in the, the really big finale, you can see that that's like what he's professionally trained to do. And it's, there's something scary about, you know, that sort of being activated inside him to keep doing that. Yeah. Even though there's like, you know, there's nothing stopping what, what it is that they, you know, what they have, have unleashed, yeah. you know, which is, which is essentially this, this ghost that is, sort of doled out mysteriously over the, the course of, of the film where they find out that like he was a sort of, he was a child molester and abuser who mm. lived with his aunt and uncle who thought that he was being possessed by what, what did he think that he was being possessed by? It was another spirit, right?
0: Yeah, I believe so. Um, I'm trying, I, trying to, I haven't about the specifics here. here yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um,
2: but like someone who also like hurt children Um, Mm -hmm. and just, I really like the way that they, you know, they they throw in details like throughout the film you can hear like cats screaming is a oh, thing right, that is very mention, recurring
0: they mentioned that when they found his body uh, all the cats were feeding on his face and so I think that's why yes, like the, be, be, because he killed himself and that. locked them locked his cats
2: in with him into right. the cupboard under the stairs and as a result when they found him the cats were starving and basically eating him and screaming and so that's why you know you find out obviously later in the film but it's 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 really cool the way that they develop a lot of these small little details or you know like um the the fact that they show the little girl's sort of description and drawing of this person pipes that they see even calling him pipes is kind of cool because it's the mom gives him that name right because the girls keep hearing things at night and the mom at first just kept saying oh it's the pipes in the wall you know whatever uh, right. it's pipes and right. then they start calling this figure that they are seeing yeah, the pipes girls who is make this it, guy
0: yeah like a person, basically.
2: Yeah. And like even, you know, little moments like that are are really creepy. And again, the way that that is sort of just interspersed throughout the more sort of like mundane broadcast elements. And you're sitting there just slowly, gradually being like, something's not right. Something's not right, guys. Yeah. <laughs> and they, you know, uh, eventually, of course, this turns uh, to some really dark places.
0: Yeah, like one aspect I liked about, the, I guess it's, it's kind of relating to the crimes he did against uh, children is when he, every time he possesses the girl or eventually possesses the host, uh, he's just reciting nursery rhymes in this like devilish, <laughs> satanic, demonic yeah. voice. Um, so it's just, you know, it's simple, but it's something that's kind of creepy, just taking something very innocent and making it demonic in some way. Um, I like that aspect of it as well. Mm-hmm. It, well, And I, I really like uh,
2: that the one reporter, Sarah, um, she says at one point something that perfectly describes the, the feeling of this movie, which is that like nothing really extreme has happened yet. There's been kind of like small details interspersed. And again, there yeah. are moments where you can you can catch. Uh, That pipes is in the background of of certain things that you can see. So like we're kind of clued in that things are getting a little bit darker. But again, it hasn't affected the broadcast yet. And there's a great moment where Sarah goes into the
0: the background.
2: (laughs) You might miss it too. Exactly. (laughs) Um, But there's a great moment where she said it's sort of eerie just waiting. Isn't it?
0: Uh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that is like the whole thesis of the film in a way,
2: because and it perfectly describes the feeling of watching this film, where you're just sitting here, you're just you're waiting, watching, watching this boring broadcast, and you're being like, things are gonna happen, and yeah, yeah, yeah and and again, it, the slow accumulation of detail when they're like, he's going around and talking to the locals, um, and he's just like, man, I hate Halloween little kids like dressed up like the <laughs> devil like this is stupid <laughs> like, yeah. that's what he's saying meanwhile like the women he's interview are being like yeah there was a girl that went missing like a week ago yeah we still haven't found her yeah. there was like a five-year-old who was knifed yeah, uh, not too long ago
0: guts hanging out uh you know <laughs> just normal happenings <laughs> Neighborhood. Happenings. And he's like,
2: and he's like, yeah, that was weird. Anyway, uh, we're going <laughs> to talk to this spiritualist now and see what his opinion is. Oh, But for Esther, for, for you in, in comparison to like, cause I know that you've watched a lot of found footage. Yeah. Is there anything that this, this movie is doing like specifically that's like different that you haven't seen replicated that maybe other people should be replicating?
1: I mean, a lot of it is the um the news broadcast aesthetic, obviously, because so much found mm-hmm. footage is obviously by its nature meant to be imitating um uh, unprofessional, like you know, uh, right productions, consumer grade technology and stuff like that. um it's very rare to see a found footage movie that is imitating a very like high level production and that's usually because when they do like it's it's just sucks because it doesn't (laughs) look like I don't know if you saw the most recent paranormal activity movie from last year a series Mm, I I did not I the first three movies of that series are amazing they're all so good and this one is terrible because the cameras just look like fucking whatever like 8k red whatever, and it's oh, like, yeah. oh. you're just supposed to be, like, people. You're just supposed to be, like, 20-year-olds. <laughs> like, yeah.
0: Not this, like, expensive it, drone footage. <laughs>
1: yeah, ex- exactly. There's literally drone footage in the movie. It's crazy. <laughs> <Called> it.
0: <laughs> um, it's so stupid. And
1: I think what Ghostwatch does really well is, like, it imitates a professional level of production and broadcast, but in a way that is so, like, aesthetically specific yeah. that it that it lands. Like, it's not, like... A found-footage movie that just looks like a movie is probably going to suck because uh, it's not going to sell itself as, as found, basically. Um, but a found-footage yeah. movie that looks like a very specific kind of uh, medium-to-high-scale production is going to be a lot more interesting, and that's what this film does really well.
0: Yeah, there's like there's moments, um, just speaking on that, that live setting again, where things are starting to happen, and you can see like a couple people in the studio getting a little worried. Specifically, the the guy that's uh, hosting like the uh, the phones. Um, there's the phone line guy. Yeah. I love the phone line guy. There's one moment where <laughs> he's he always actually, like, we're
2: getting calls in. We're getting calls in, Mike. Like crazy. <laughs> yeah, he's
0: so stressed out. And there's one part where it's after they actually experience some type of ghostly phenomenon and he they cut to him. And before he reacts, he's just kind of like staring off into space as if he's contemplating his entire <laughs> life. And then <laughs> he he kind of clues in and he's like, oh, yeah, we've, we've got a caller. Um, and that was just another interesting aspect to use like a a well-known host and have him even start to like believe on live on television and that kind of thing. So yeah, the, the format is, is huge, a huge thing. Yeah,
2: It's a really, it can't be overstated, honestly, like how well the, the imitation is being done. Like there are so many moments that only work because of that. Like one of my personal favorites is, um something that could have only been done using this format, which is when they start to hear the noises in the house and, um, they start trying to locate them and find out what's happening because they have, they've obviously set up these cameras to actually spot something that the people can't, which is something that we actually talked about with Esther on Blair, which project that's, what's supposed to be scary about fan footage that the camera can see things that the characters can't. That's the whole reason they take Mm -hmm. the cameras. Um, yeah, And this one does it really well where they have all of those sort of cameras set up around the house to, you know, figure out where to centralize this noise. And there's a moment where they actually let you in on the experience as the audience watching the characters live edit the film for you where you can get the doctor literally saying, show me show me the top of the stairs. Show me the bedroom. Show me the kitchen. Like right. and and the the sort of live broadcasters and the guys in, in the switch room are actually doing that. And obviously, it's not it's not a live broadcast, so that's not happening. It's a deliberate choice they have to make in the filmmaking to pull this off. But it's really cool because that's actually the moment where they discovered that it is. The one girl um Susie oh, right. the older sister doing the banging and then you can see like the smirk on that anchor man's face when he's like this was a hoax the whole fucking time we fucking yes. got him live on air like you know like because that's you could tell that that was his opinion of the material that he was he was doing and he's ready um, but to the wrap way it that they
0: too
2: yeah mm-hmm. yeah And he's like I-, I think we've been shown that this is a deliberate fraud. You know, yeah. and the little girl, oh my God, the, some of the performances in this, I think, are really good. But that little really girl, good. when she's just like, I just wanted to show them, you know, we gave you what you wanted. Yeah. You know, being well, like, gets, you know, like all, of all of you were waiting for it.
1: Yeah, because yeah. the, the, sub, the subte- a lot of the subtext of this movie is about, like, poverty and class mm-hmm. and the notion that, like, something that also interestingly comes across in the uh, Conjuring 2, like, adaptation of this same story, this notion that, like, it was assumed the Enfield poltergeist was, you know, just a hoax because the family was poor and people sort of derided them as like, well, they're just trying to sell a story. They're just trying to make a buck. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's part of this version of the story. Uh, It's part of Ghostwatch, especially in that bit where the girl says, we gave you what you wanted. The idea that like, you know, obviously in the narrative, this is a real thing that's happening. But like what is stressing her out as the thing goes on is that because nothing is happening, she's worried that, not that they're going to, think they're lying but like that they're not going to get anything out of this that nothing is going to get fixed that nobody's Mm going to help them yeah and it's like it's it's like it's sad honestly
2: yeah yeah it's, it's a really it's a really sad moment and I think also leads into a really interesting element of this film that um they can't do in something like The Conjuring 2, where they're just like sort of adapting this story. Like it's it's something that's literally affecting these characters that, you know, mm-hmm. maybe they they are seeking this attention. Some people think for cynical reasons, you know, they're doing it because they hope to actually relieve this issue that they're having. But this film in particular, um, it also kind of implicates the viewer in a way where it's kind of like suggesting that the the you know, like this broadcast exists for general live entertainment like they have a phone line set up
0: this isn't about your help this is about our entertainment (laughs) exactly yeah
2: and yeah and and there's even a kind of really really cool little twist that they throw near the end where the doctor kind of realizes that you know through um This, you know, sort of this entertainment model, and through this modern technology, they've kind of performed a modern, a new form of seance,
0: a national, (laughs) which is actual, yeah, which is actually
2: kind of, um, kind of summoned um it and and actually made it worse and all of these characters sort of building up this fear together and building up this you know by 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 sharing these stories they've kind of created this this national network of sitting around a campfire together and performing a kind of ritual and i thought that was a that was like a really interesting Element to it, and yeah. I was uh, I I went and did some some reading up on the film, and I found out that um, Adam Curtis, actually the renowned British documentary, actually wrote about this film. Um, I think in the 2000s, and on his blog, he said some he he pointed out something you know really similar to this idea that I thought was awesome, where he basically said that this film sort of captured an idea of ghosts are now inside the television itself yeah (laughs) that there is this strange Mm -hmm. netherworld of pr driven half truths and synthetic personalities and waves of just like apocalyptic fear that the public is feeling all kind of funneling together and i feel like that kind of perfectly captures what it feels like to to by the end of this film you are watching something that is shot that last the the last stuff that happens in this film like it it genuinely does feel like again it's something that's constructed but it's something that's completely like unleashed and untamed like curtis using this term sort of like a synthetic apocalypse is like exactly what that you know um ends up feeling like when it when it gets to the finale and obviously things start going going crazy they start finding you know like the, the, the they start using the infrared camera to try and track um, the ghost and try to help the little girls and Jamie already mentioned the part where the ghost actually like plays back older footage for them for a while so mm-hmm. there's actually a point in, in the film. now <laughs> mm-hmm Yeah, where the ghost is editing, and and they're sitting there going, yeah, look, look, they look fine. I mean, the last time we saw them, they were cut up and screaming and freaking the fuck out. (laughs) But now they're just just sitting there in the living room. They look good. And then the doctor at one point goes, but that picture fell off the wall earlier and shattered. Like, how is it still up there? And then they realize, oh my God, we are watching. We're not watching live. It's like six Um, hours ago. Yeah, we're not watching live footage, and... Yeah, the the fucking I love the tracking shot of uh, Sarah, the report, the live reporter who's there, like running up and down the stairs, like looking for Susie and eventually ending up at the cupboard under the stairs, which I'm going to assume that this is just a British thing. But it is very (laughs) funny that they call it a glory hole. Yeah, (laughs) it is. Uh, yeah, that is not the and, same and, thing and here. <laughs> and, and it is very funny that despite the fact that they go, Oh my God, it's coming from the glory hole. And they say it like <laughs> twice in the film, um, that the filmmaking is so good that it doesn't take you out of that moment. Like even, um, yeah. where, you know, she actually like goes into the cupboard and she's trying to get the little girl out and she just gets like pulled in or when she opens it earlier, and you see half of the door frame is taken up by just like this, like dead dude who's standing there, like by, uh, pipes. Yeah. And then they don't see it though, because like the, I think the lighting setup falls over and it like knocks the, the boom guy over and they go, Oh my God, like we need to help him out.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, there's even, yeah. I, I like the, uh the the full little panic. girl and the cellar door, like, I, I also like the thought where she just goes down the stairs and is explaining everything to everybody at the beginning, and she's just like, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, I was just looking through the crack, and I saw a man inside there. Like, it, it's just, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, he was, like, bleeding creepy, out of his
2: eye. Yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> and
0: she's innocently reciting this story, it's it's definitely got a creep creepy factor to that, too, I liked yeah. yeah, yeah, definitely like the,
2: the slow build of the detail and the creepiness factor. And then eventually it unleashes and just like full on like panic and 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 possession. And we we do. Oh, I, I found the part in the notes. We, we do end up finding out that the spirit is a psychologically disturbed molester named Raymond Tunstall um, and who <laughs> thinks that he is possessed by um, a mother... who was a baby farmer turned child killer from the 19th century. Of course. Um, and he hanged himself by tying a wire to a lathe and putting it around his neck. And he was in there for 12 days before they found him being eaten by his own cats. So really gruesome detail uh, (laughs) throughout this again, like the dog being mutilated. Like, I mean, this is what I think really ended up disturbing people is that like it appeared like a, like a general audience friendly program. And even though it's not the most, like, graphic in terms of what you see, there are there are a couple freaky moments, obviously, that we've already talked about with pipes. But then also, the subject matter just gets really gruesome after a while. Like, again, describing yeah. all the the puppy fetuses littered around the community that, that someone pulled out. And, like, <laughs> yeah, that kind of stuff is... You know that that is what I think ended up sitting in with people's mind, and what really would have disturbed children yeah. <laughs> watching this. And
0: also just the fact that, it, that most of the 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 ghostly stuff is happening to kids, to an eleven-year-old and I think a thirteen-year-old girl. So. Yeah, um, that's true. You know, just just, you know, it's it's that that innocence and, and real lack of defense that they would have as children that makes it a little bit scarier as well. So I can imagine you being a 12 year old watching this and seeing, you know, the 12 year old recite some nursery rhyme as the devil and being like, holy shit something's happening
2: well yeah and then and and then you add on the fact that they're (laughs) Mm -hmm. like all of the screens in the studio like the fact that they're watching that footage on a bunch of screens like behind them and sometimes we're seeing the shot like framed and be just an old British guy being like oh (laughs) 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 while you're watching that footage
0: yeah can you imagine also being like we were we were talking about just coming in like you know 30 minutes in and you might think that this is actually a a live event that's happening uh, at least within like 15 minute time frame but can you imagine Almost missing all of it, and and the only thing you see is Michael Parkinson slowly walk up to the camera <laughs> as a demonic voice and reciting <laughs> fee five fo fum as it goes to black. Like that, that probably would have been something at least for five seconds where you went, is the is the world ending? Like what's happening right now?
2: <laughs> yeah, that that climax honestly is so good. The way that I it goes it. from like Susie being like. Um, you know he's hurting me he's hurting me like in the cupboard and then you watch the reporter get sucked into the cupboard and it slam Oof. and the wind starts blowing through the house and everything like that and which the then the wind starts starts blowing through the studio like literally oh. physically connecting these two places yeah and I love the crew just being like nope I'm out I'm done <laughs> literally night. like the camera guy luck, the camera guy the lighting guy yeah <laughs> they are just like, I've seen enough. I believe in ghosts now. I believe. I'm good. Um, That's all you needed. Yep. Oh, man. Uh, I completely understand as, like, the lights are slowly going out. And my favorite detail about this is that Parkinson doesn't break his fucking anchor character. Yeah. And he's... He's literally just like describing the things happening around him. He's like, "Well, uh, the lights are losing <laughs> power now as well. Uh, the studio is but just uh, people it's completely dark now. Me. Uh, it we, is it just does blackness. Seem
0: like a situation.
2: <laughs> the lights have failed. Um, there's there's cameras, but I don't know that anyone's working them. Um, oh my God. There's no cameramen." If, if you can hear me i am deeply frightened
0: yeah <laughs> yeah man it's 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 great it's good stuff a lot that of stuff the they, really they play with the format and the and the hosts and and yeah and the live like just, yeah but just kind of pulling this this whole like live broadcast off too it's just a very specific format that's not even necessarily the same as like a ghost hunters thing or anything like that so there's mm-hmm. there's a lot of creativity involved in this really Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, I think pivoting
2: towards a uh, reductive rating round on Ghostwatch here, I think this one's going to get the high for, for me, like just yeah. right off the bat. I, and I kind of want to watch it again. Um, already, I, I, already told my girlfriend that I think she would really like it. So I think we're going to, we might watch watch it again sometime this year. Maybe we'll save it for the spooky season. But, um, this I thought was really just fantastic. Um, like again, a really clever and creepy Sort of like fake reality TV documentary that is so aesthetically indistinguishable from the kind of boring, dry British broadcasting news program that you would watch that it this actually did trick people and viewers of the BBC into thinking that they were watching this for real live <laughs> on Halloween Night, 1992. And I just wish I was in that audience. Oh, that would yeah. have been one hell yeah um, of of an experience. And then how well they sort of like. Pile up the the weirdness and the ghost story aspects and the found footage horror kind of flexing like again sort of like the soundscape and some of the framing and the gruesome stories from the locals and the history and everything like that. And, you know, once again, uh, as it piles up, the seams just kind of start to rip on the broadcast, like the style and the camera becomes a little bit more panicked. And you just hear a nonstop soundscape of like screaming kids and terrified reporters running. And, you know, you you hear you know that there's like a, a disturbed ghost of a molester who killed himself trying to attack children like it gets really dark. And all the instances where you can see pipes are horrifying if yeah. you can spot them. It's 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 that where's Waldo? I'm looking up that style video. Uh, horror that uh, a lot of people kind of associate with, like Mike Flanagan, right now. Sure, um, yeah. that kind of stuff is is really effective, and yeah, so like not just one of the great pieces of like prank art. Since, as Jamie mentioned, Orson Welles' War of the Worlds, or or also, you know, uh, that that silent era train that got some people. Oh, yeah. I don't know if it was <laughs> w- intended but it got people.
0: I was going to mention too the uh that famous like alien autopsy that um for, yes. from area 51. That was a big one. Yeah, and absolutely I, I in the obs- same lineage. Yeah, I was obsessed with that when I was a kid, so that, that's pretty funny. Um and then the uh um there's one I was just looking at on Wikipedia. I hadn't seen this, but I kind of want to check it out. But there's one called mermaids, the body found, and apparently it actually tricked mm-hmm. people into thinking they were watching a a documentary about mermaids. So (laughs) that's probably pretty wild too. There's, Um, there's a
1: really amazing one that I want to watch that my girlfriend has told me about. She remembers seeing commercials for, um, called when cars attack. Um, and this one is, I think a little more tongue in cheek. I don't think it was necessarily intended to fool people, but the premise is that it's real footage of cars that have minds of their own and like are attacking people. That's
2: awesome. Yeah. Incredible. Um, but yeah, but, but I also just don't want to, I guess for anyone who hasn't seen it, like just say that this is kind of like a gimmick movie because it's a really terrifying piece of just horror filmmaking, mm, uh, as well. Yeah. Really thought through, um, tracking shots and cutting. And again, the slow buildup of sort of like the eerie detail and everything like that. And it's just made all the more shocking by how perfectly it replicates the mundane sort of like form and energy of the, of the medium. um, that it's 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 imitating it really lulls you into the british broadcasting style which <laughs> sounds like a funny thing to compliment a movie for doing but it it's really really well done just watching like you know, like uh, having having the boring doctors do a debate or fielding phone calls from the audience. Some of them doing prank calls, like the one right. we didn't mention—the one guy who does a prank call where he's like, "Yeah, my my pizza fell on the floor." And you can hear all <laughs> <different> <laughs> just laughing in
0: the background. Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
2: yeah. yeah it, it really just is indistinguishable from what, like what like a real broadcast about the paranormal would be, right down to how boring and silly it can be sometimes, but doing that very very intentionally to create this kind of distance between you and it before suddenly removing that distance from you in the last minute like i was i was really impressed by just how it constantly escalates literally until the final frame of the film where you could argue it probably hits its its high point where it chooses to just cut to black right then and there um but also the way that it just intentionally preys on and kind of perversely engages you as, as Esther mentioned, the way that it teaches you how to look through the screen, the way to kind of spot what's different from a usual broadcast, the actual scary detail that's popping up and making you kind of think you're at a safer distance, uh, than you are, which is something I think true about just the news in general. Um, the fact that so many people consume news and what is it that it bleeds it leads, that kind of thing. You know, yeah, the fact that right. people consume this kind of, uh, stuff for entertainment, thinking that, you know, it can't get into their home. Um, this movie is the argument it absolutely can get into your home you are yeah. part of a televised seance summoning the demon your children have ptsd now good luck yeah, and,
0: now that, <laughs> and now that very same broadcaster you you normally trust for your news and whatever is is reciting something to you demonically reciting and trying to possess the <laughs> entire rhymes. nation yeah so it's like yeah <laughs> unreal unreal and yeah. Like, like I really that think that too. this movie
2: makes you feel like it, it establishes that distance just to make you feel unsafe by the end. That's the whole point of it.
0: Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And I like that it's not this like, you know, jump scare or something that ends the film. It's this just very slow and creepy. Michael Parkinson reciting this demonic nursery rhyme. <laughs> it's, it's great. Um, yeah Hell yeah but yeah so so very high four
2: for me i think honestly
0: yeah yeah i think I'm, I'm right there with you i love the play on the live format i love that you know for the most part you're just watching a bunch of dry and and you know kind of funny but very dry uh, bbc hosts that are trying their best to balance the the format itself and kind of the feelings of the family that they're dealing with some are doing it much better than others <laughs> um And uh, so, so, yeah, I I just thought that this was absolutely brilliant. I love that it it ended up being something similar to the War of the Worlds situation where people were actually falling for... Uh, this kind of <laughs> this kind of prank, I, th- I think that's just awesome. And it, you know, one it's a million
2: phone calls they estimate yeah. that they received during its ninety-minute broadcast. That's crazy. Could you imagine?
0: And it's just a testament <laughs> to the skill here. Like it's it's obviously that well-directed. If enough people were convinced of the uh, it got the under people's skin of for England, sure. yeah. So. Um, just, just, just awesome! Check it out. It's it's one of my favorite ghost movies now, and I I just checked it out for the first time. I think uh, Halloween last year, so this is this is a new one for Great me. Great time to watch it. Yeah, it's it's <laughs> spectacular. Go check it out. <laughs> for
2: you, Esther.
1: Oh yeah, I mean it's like it. It's a five. I I nice. It is de- it oh, is yeah. a non traditional kind of found footage movie, like we talked about. But it is mm-hmm. it has everything that I love about the genre and more. It's so so well executed and smart and scary. Yeah. It's, it's, it's so good.
2: Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Um, oh yeah. And there was one line I have written down that I wanted to hit before we wrapped up. Mm -hmm. Uh, the little girl says it, it's incredible. And it, 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 it leads into the whole, um, the way that it's using sort of like, implicating the viewer and the camera and everything like that as well but when she says when they, they start trying to shut down the, the production a little bit at one point they were like the girls getting hurt she probably scratched herself like we should just stop this now this isn't fun anymore right like, we, we were having we were having fun poking fun at this family but <laughs> yeah. now it's just kind of sad
1: um, <laughs> th- that's sad, the point of so the movie
2: that they hit <laughs> yeah and uh, the one little girl as they're trying to end the program says but pipe says he wants to see everybody look everybody wants to see him and And she's like pointing at the camera crew. (laughs) Oh yeah. 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 So good. And so scary. Um, But yeah, I think that'll wrap it up for our uh, ghostly double feature here of the discarnates from 1998 and ghost watch from 1992. Thanks so much, Esther for uh, bringing these films with you. This was a really great double feature. Um, This is the uh, part of the show where if you've got anything to plug while you're here. Feel free to do so.
1: Yeah. Oh Yeah. Um, Well, first of all, you have to Google Get Cynical Podcast to find my podcast, Get Cynical, because we don't have a website. Um, (laughs) Just Google it and you'll get there. We talk about um, internet video creators who are bad people. In our first season, (laughs) we did uh, That Guy With The Glasses and Chronicle That History. And this season,
0: um, our current
1: season, we're talking about... um, uh, YouTube creators who sort of had aspirations to make features and all of their terrible movies. And <laughs> we've had a lot of, we had we had uh, Josh on the podcast. Yeah. Um, we had Perry Roland, We had... Nice. Yeah. Um, Cameron. Friend of the pod. Nibiru Truth, another friend of the also pod. Also friend of the pod. Um, <laughs> and we had Felix Biederman, who I don't know if he's beyond Sleezoids, but I know you've had other He has not. That. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, and yeah, you have to Google that, and then you have to go to my Twitter account, which is Cappy Baroness, which is C-A-P-Y-B-A-R-O-N-E-S-S. And if you look at my pinned tweet, if you enjoyed our conversation about the discarnates, uh, just just take a look at my pinned tweet. Um, you know, I might can be recommend taking you. a
2: look at the pinned tweet. Uh, we may have used the pinned tweet. Check out <laughs> the pinned tweet. And and,
0: and before people uh, get into the podcast, would you suggest that every person watches every single channel awesome video? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, no.
1: We do, we as to paraphrase the nostalgia critic, we did it so you don't have to.
2: <laughs>
1: well, said, I well
2: had said. to though. You made me do it.
0: <laughs> I might strap in one day. Get that samurai blade out. His
2: his review <laughs> of AI was brutal. <laughs> 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 oh, I never man. want to hear that man talk about Steven Spielberg ever oh, again. I
1: forgot
0: what oh, we Floyd. had you on
2: for. God. Yeah.
0: yeah. Uh, the Wall. I've seen that one. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs>
2: awesome yeah i can definitely recommend checking out uh all of those things go see what esther's doing she's great um in in one week's time for our listeners we are going to be back over on the patreon feed where there looks like there's going to be a new uh hopefully not shitty but (laughs) i don't have super high hopes uh texas chainsaw reboot sequel legacy sequel thi- i don't know who it looks like they're halloween 2018 in texas chainsaw now we'll they see how that plays out for them in the
0: trailer so i don't know <laughs>
2: but we'll see yeah we'll, we'll see but it made a really great excuse for us to go back as jamie mentioned at the top of the show and talk about the texas chainsaw movies that nobody talks about
0: yeah uh, which are the two
2: from the 90s we're going to talk about texas chainsaw 3 And Texas Chainsaw Four, which I believe is called the Next Generation,
0: is that right? Yeah, yeah. They bring it. They bring it to the Next Generation. Absolutely.
2: So we've already talked about Texas Chainsaw One and Two. You can find episodes um, on those uh, previously. We obviously love those films, so we are very curious to see what they were trying to pull off in the '90s. No idea if they're going to be good or not. But (laughs) I am.
0: I like the fourth one, uh, but but the the third one is uh, something else. Yeah
2: morbidly curious uh anyway i am i am curious to see mcconaughey get his mcconaughey thing on in texas chainsaw <laughs> movie it's
0: wild it's um, so fun
2: and then in uh two weeks time we are going to be back with a special guest where we are going to be going uh schwarzenegger and yeah uh seagal mode we're going to be ooh. finally talking about one that we've been kind of saving for a while uh, a guest finally wanted to bring it on we're going to talk about one commando Mark L Lester somehow we've covered all of his other films before this we've covered like <laughs> class of 1984 and <laughs> I can't remember what that other one was um, but we're going to talk about commando and then we're going to be talking about Steven Seagal's Under Siege is the pairing and the testosterone uh, is ac- off the charts it's one of the few Seagal's I actually haven't seen yet so I I am curious uh, how that one is going to play out but that's what you yeah. can expect in Two weeks' time. Uh, But yeah, I think that wraps it up for everything this week. Thanks so much for listening and keep it sleazy. Keep it sleazy.